Hey everyone, this is Caleb here from In the Mood for Real History. Now before you get started with this episode, if you haven't heard, I want to tell you about Anchor. It's the easiest way to make a podcast, so let me explain it to you. First off, being on a teacher's salary, I love that it is free. There's also creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. So make sure to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end. It's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. It was a beautiful, sleepy morning on June 1st, 1921, until all of a sudden, Eldoris, wake up! We have to go! Harriet Ector shrieked to her daughter that beautiful morning. The white people are killing the black folks! The cloudless sky outside was still pink from the dawn, but those words drove Eldoris straight from her sleep. White people? Killing black people? Eldoris t- waited to shake free from a nightmare, but she couldn't. She turned her mother's words around in her young mind, trying to fit them together in a way that would make sense, but that still didn't happen. White people. Eldoris never had a reason to fear them before. Every morning since she could remember, her father had set out on foot walking south from the black quarter where her family lived in Greenwood. There he would cross the Frisco railroad tracks at the edge of the community and cross into the tall buildings and new homes and fancy businesses where the whites of Tulsa lived. Thousands of African Americans worked for white people of Tulsa, but most importantly, they were paid a great wage. Many members of the black community would literally live at their boss's place on on the Tulsa side of town until Thursday nights. Then they would come home and go out for a night on the town in Greenwood. They would stroll up and down the streets, gazing at the new shops, restaurants, and clubs that all made up what became known as the Black Wall Street of America. Greenwood was a marvel of a community That was a beacon of hope only 60 years after the Civil War. But then, in the early morning hours of June 1st, 1921, it all disintegrated with Eldoris' mother's early morning words. The white people are killing the black folks. The second that Eldoris poked her head out the front door, she knew it was true. She turned to head south and saw a massive black cloud of smoke billowing up from town. She looked up to see airplanes buzzing low above her head. She heard the dull thuds of bullets hitting the ground around her like raindrops, and she realized she and her family were being shot at from the air. Her father yanked her back to reality, and she began racing up north to join the massive exodus of thousands of her neighbors who were fleeing north with nothing more than the clothes on their back. Why? The question hung over the procession like the smoke from the fires behind them. All anyone knew was that a few days before, a white girl had accused a black boy of assault, which somehow causes Greenwood to be swallowed up by a rage. It was as if every ounce of enmity that had been building up in the whites since the Civil War had exploded all at once on their doorsteps. In the decades to come, few Tolsons on either side of the tracks spoke out loud of the Great Burning. 
It was as though the catastrophe was a secret that both blacks and whites conspired to keep. Indeed, people who moved to the city only a few years later might never have known that it had happened at all. Hello and streaming to you live from one of the few places in Alabama with any common sense. This is In the Mood to Learn Real History, where I'm on a mission to make history real again. With today's society filled with fake news and all-out lies in history books, every week this podcast is going to take an episode-by-episode look into the obscure and the major events of history, but from a people's perspective. So instead of hearing the same old stories from your history books that you most likely slept through, we're going to look at these events from a perspective of everyday people and how they, not glorified leaders, truly shaped our history. And I'm your host, Caleb Mood. So I want to start out by saying how thankful I am for your support. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to hit that thumbs up and subscribe button below to keep up with any new content that I put out. You can also subscribe to me on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. I greatly appreciate any reviews or comments. So, after a brief hiatus, I am finally back, and we're going to be starting a new series this week on the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 and the subsequent destruction of Black Wall Street. So, the 99th anniversary of this all-out assault on the city of Greenwood, Oklahoma, is this month, but has been all but whitewashed from the history books. Unlike the glossy overviews that we see in your textbooks of other areas of history, I'm adding a twist to this episode by letting the accounts of the people who survived the deadliest incident of racial violence in our nation's history tell the story. So this horrific stain on our nation's past was covered up and essentially blocked out of existence because no one uh, spoke up on out of fear or just on purpose. Sadly, as we approach this 100th anniversary of the massacre, we're facing many of the same prejudices and hatred across the country today. Just like the events of the massacre, we must refuse to, quote, move on or drop the protesting, the injustices that are going on today, for fear that they might get swept under the rug or forgotten about. Over the course of a 24-hour period, an estimated 300 African Americans were murdered, with some estimates as high as 1,000. The entire community of Greenwood, including 1,256 homes, businesses, hospitals, churches, and schools were burnt to the ground. Despite the clear and abundant evidence pointing towards who committed these crimes, not one person was ever arrested or held accountable for the sheer and utter destruction that occurred. Just like I mentioned in the promo, the next two episodes will not be an overview of what happened during this event, but rather I'm going to let the accounts of the people who survived this all-out assault tell their story. So with this in mind, let's begin our story on a warm May night in 1913. Captain Townsend D. Jackson took one final glance over his prepared speech that he would be presenting as the keynote speaker at Greenwood's First Baptist Church. Jackson was an ex-slave, revered as a black lawman and a militia leader in both Oklahoma and Tennessee. He was a man who had cast off the shackles of slavery and now looked the white governor of Oklahoma straight in the eye without blinking. Just a few months ago, Jackson and his family had moved to Greenwood from the Oklahoma town of Guthrie. Those who gathered in attendance that night were anxious to hear for themselves the man's thoughts on the great racial questions of the day. That night at the church, they would finally get their chance. 
Captain Townsend was an impressive sight at over six feet tall and dark gray hair that alluded to the countless events he had witnessed throughout his life. Seated on the front pew of the church was a long line of some of the most distinguished black men in Greenwood. And so here is one of the first themes that I want to focus on. The profiles of the members of the Greenwood community are all distinguished and well-educated black men. I'm emphasizing this because I want to not only show just how much of a prosperous place this was for people of color, but also to provide examples of how each of these individuals contradicted the white-held belief of black inferiority. So starting from the left to the right, on the front uh, pew of the church was Andrew J. Smitherman. Smitherman was an editor of the Tulsa Star, which was Greenwood's leading publication and its most authoritative voice uh, for the people. Along with covering local news, Smitherman never missed an opportunity to rail against the injustices that were perpetrated against his people, and he had personally intervened in numerous attempted lynchings in neighboring towns. Seated next to Smitherman was John B. Stratford. Stratford was a son of a Kentucky slave who went on to gain a law degree from the University of Indiana. He quickly emerged as one of Greenwood's most successful entrepreneurs. Like Smitherman, Stratford was not shy about fighting injustices that he witnessed around him. In fact, both of them were strong proponents of protecting themselves and their community by any means necessary. So while not everyone in attendance that night held the same militant views as Stratford and Smitherman, everybody wanted to assert their rights and have those rights protected. But every man and woman in attendance in their own way proved that the prevailing theories of black inferiority was complete and utter bullshit. To witness the crowd at Greenwood First Baptist that night was to witness the upper echelon of, of Greenwood at its finest. These numerous black sex stories were viewed as threats to the whites of Tulsa. The whites viewed African Americans as childlike at best, bestial at worst, but nonetheless a threat to the safety and dignity of Southerners and surely incapable of participating in self-government. So when the North looked away at the end of Reconstruction in 1877, whites... Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end. It's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. State legislators across the South moved quickly to make sure that the black community would not only have a chance, would not have a chance to participate in democracy. State after state did this by disenfranchising them with voting requirements that most African Americans had no hope of meeting. Literacy tests that required someone to answer questions like how many windows were on the White House, they were all means to suppress the black vote. So in 1870, Tennessee passed the South's first Jim Crow statute that mandated segregation in every facet of social and public life. In the years following the Civil War, embittered rebel, rebel soldiers joined the Ku Klux Klan by tens of thousands, and they rained death and terror on black communities and white allies. Over the decades, thousands of African Americans were lynched by white mobs, some for the crime of attempting to vote, or for tipping their hat to a white woman, 
or for failing to be, quote, subservient to the white race, just to name a few reasons. So for nearly half a century, these tactics were used as ways to control the black community. In 1913, something changed. Did white people start to see the idiocy of their racial hatred? Hell no. The change came instead in the hearts and minds of the former slaves and their offspring. Nowhere in America was this transformation in greater evidence than in the Greenwood community. For years, many in Greenwood had embraced the teachings of men like Booker T. Washington, who preached that the path to white respect and ultimate equality ran through education and the acquisition of vocational skills. Well, as the years passed, though, others in Greenwood began to subscribe to far less accommodating uh, philosophies that took hold after the turn of the century with a new generation of black leaders. One of them, W.E.B. Du Bois, started to ignite fires in the hearts of oppressed black Americans everywhere. Du Bois wrote, We have cast off on the voyage which will lead to freedom or death. For nearly three centuries we have suffered and cowered. No race ever gave passive submission to evil a long, more piteous trial. Today we must raise the terrible weapon of self-defense. So this was the debate that raged back and forth every day in Greenwood barbershops, bars, and restaurants. Were equality and respect to be earned or not? Was it to be the quiet achievement of black Americans or by any means necessary? Was it the way of Booker T. Washington or W.E.B. Du Bois? These questions lingered in the air on the spring night in 1913 when Captain Jackson began to address his community for the first time. Jackson stated that if time shall ever come where when we possess in the colored community of this country a class of men noted for enterprise, industry, economy, and success, we shall no longer have any trouble in the matter of civil and political rights. The battle against the popular prejudice shall have been won and fought. Jackson went on to use his son, Dr. Andrew Jackson, as an example. Dr. Andrew Jackson had rapidly become one of the finest and most respected black surgeons in the United States. He was respected by both black and white communities. Jackson believed that those accomplishments would be a shield against a mob of hate. So, unfortunately, this speech was an utter disappointment to the Greenwood militants in the audience. And eight years later, it would become clear exactly why those militants were right. No black achievement would appease the white hatred of that time. How naive Jackson's words would seem eight years later, on the terrible morning when Greenwood burned. So we've mentioned that there were a tremendous amount of white hatred not only in Tulsa, but nationwide. There was a multitude of reasons for why such a level of hatred persisted that stemmed from long-held beliefs and newer beliefs. The newspapers played a very important role in fanning the flames of hatred by dramatizing accounts of race riots that were occurring all across the nation. Whites were worried about black men taking their jobs or, quote, deflowering their women. Whites were also enraged by what they called, quote, uppity blacks who were no longer content to ride the segregated rail cars. So this caused tension to rise to the point where any singular event could set off a calamitous event. Sound kind of familiar, doesn't it? Anyway, in Chicago in 1919, a black boy was swimming in Lake Michigan, 
and he had drifted towards a part of a beach that was reserved for whites. The boy ended up being stoned and drowned, which touched off a fight between the black and the white people who witnessed it. This led to weeks of mayhem and dozens of African Americans being killed and black homes burned as well. Every year, stories like these were becoming more and more common. More and more whites seemed to insist on torturing black victims before lynching them. It was as if killing a black person did not satisfy their lust for hate. Newspapers ran ads inviting the public to witness the burning or lynching of black men. It was no wonder that Captain Jackson saw the rage building in his audience's face as these stories were discussed in the church on that night. The young black men of Greenwood were especially enraged. Hundreds of them had fought in World War I and had been treated by the French people with dignity and respect. They had fought and bled defending freedom, or so they were told, only to find that their brothers were still being mutilated and killed at home. Decades and decades of continued terror at the hands of white oppression was the kindling for a bonfire that was only waiting on a match. So Richard Lloyd Jones, he had been silent for years by the time of his death in December of 1963. The once singular public voice and owner of the Tulsa Tribune fell silent in the years leading up to his death, only to be resurrected in an issue-long obituary at the time of his death. Throughout his obituary, praise after praise was heaped upon him. But what failed to garner any inclusion in his obituary was the Tulsa race riot of 1921. In fact, though it later became regarded as one of the most terrible events of its kind in the history of our nation, scarcely a word of this tragedy ever saw print in the Tribune after the ashes of Greenwood cooled off. In retrospect, this was not surprising. For it was not at all pleasant to recall that at the time of the riot, Jones might have been Tulsa's most vocal racist. He was sympathetic to, if not actually a member of the Ku Klux Klan. As much, Jones turned his notorious anger and his poison pen against Greenwood. It was one particular editorial piece that was printed on the early edition of the Tribune on May 31st, that would ensure Jones's place in history, for arguably, it was Jones and his editorial more than any one person whose actions instigated the obliteration of America's most thriving black community. The most infuriating thing about Richard Jones is that he never shied away from sharing his beliefs regarding people of color. On numerous occasions, he referred to Greenwood as, quote, little Africa that needed to be cleaned up. Jones also ran numerous editorials that praised the rebirth of the Klan in Oklahoma. On February 4th, 1921, only a few months before our event, the article he pr posted praised the Klan, stating, quote, The new Klan will be living, lasting, and a memorial to the original Klan members who had saved the South from a black empire built on the ruins of Southern homes and institutions. So this leads us to wonder, what was causing this rebirth of the Klan? In many ways, White Tulsa was a mirror image of its thriving Greenwood suburb. Yet this rosy image was more of a thin masking of a grittier, more unseemly reality of life across the nation as a whole in the years that were following World War I. So in regards to sheer nastiness, hatred, and paranoia, few other moments in American history can really compare. 
It was a time of terror and violence. Born from the same rancid breeding ground that, ins- that had inspired human atrocities since the beginning of time. Human beings were inclined to fear and thus to hate those different from themselves. And never before had our nation been confronted with such diversity. In the two decades after 1900, European immigrants flocked to the U.S. at a rate of 2,000 people a day. But these were not English language speakers from England. These immigrants were from Eastern European countries such as Russia and Czechoslovakia. They brought new languages, religions, and cultures. This flew in the face of the majority of white Protestants who believed that the U.S. was their exclusive domain. Once again, sound kind of similar to today? Anyway, thus, America's nativist movement was born, and the modern clan was the protector of the, quote, American way of life. These cultural tensions were further escalated with America's entry into World War I. It was into this already volatile mix that African Americans returning home from World War I were thrust into. Tens of thousands of black soldiers had fought and died for their country and expected their patriotism to be rewarded with better treatment at home. When they returned home, they found that their life uh, for their people had, if anything, gotten worse. Only now, white lynch mobs were likely to be met by black veterans bearing rifles and pistols. The result was racial warfare unlike anything the nation had ever seen. Life in Tulsa was no anomaly. The very same racial tensions were evident on the streets in and around Tulsa. The same deadly cocktail of paranoia under the guise of World War I patriotism was fed by ethnic and racial hatred. So all of this came to a head in late May of 1921. The Tulsa populace was already inflamed by a series of local jailbreaks on the day when the Tribune police reporter brought back word of the alleged assault by a, by a black shoeshiner named Dick Rowland on a teenage girl in an elevator at the Drexel building. The charge was highly suspect from the beginning. Rowland had been arrested, but even the investigators were suspicious of the credibility of the accusation. So despite all this evidence to the contrary... Richard Lloyd Jones printed an inflammatory account of the elevator incident and Rowland's arrest. While an original copy of the paper does not exist, the headline provided the necessary spark that set off the worst instance of racial violence in American history. So, a young storekeeper named Damie Rowland was barely scraping by herself when a skinny black boy materialized at her front door. He appeared to have no more than six years old because life on the streets could add or take away years on someone. His first words to her was, I'm hungry. He said his name was Jimmy Jones, and that his only relatives were his two older sisters, who also lived on the streets with him begging for food. So, he won Damie Rowland over the very moment that they met. And after discussing it with his sisters, Jimmy moved in with Damie. Hearing of better job prospects in Tulsa, she and Jimmy packed up and moved 40 miles south to Tulsa. Jimmy, or Dick, as he decided to go by, was not only charming, but he was a hard worker that knew how to make money. He was about as good with the ladies as he was with making money, but Damie knew from the gleam in Dick's eye that this new white girl was much more than just a friend to Dick. 
Damien never knew for sure whether Dick and the girl named Sarah Page was anything more than acquaintances, but it was clear that Dick had aspirations for more than a friendship. So Sarah Page, she ran an elevator in the Drexel building downtown where Dick's employers at the shoeshine stand had arranged for his workers to use the bathroom on the, fr- uh, the fourth floor that was for black people only. Dick didn't complain, though, because that gave him an excuse to ride Sarah's elevator several times a day. Damie had always feared the white backlash against interracial relationships. She scolded him, saying how many times had the trouble started with a black man smiling at a white woman who would then scream rape. This would result in a white mob bent on, quote, avenging the woman's honor by lynching the man. It's almost funny that there was so much outrage, though, when you saw tens of thousands of mixed men and women all around the U.S. That was the final proof that white men never hesitated to find their pleasure with black women. Before the Civil War, southern slave owners kept their white women on pedestals hidden away from the slaves. They made their women's icons to white purity and the southern way of life. But such veneration came with a cost. Women on pedestals tended to be frosty in bed, you could say, and most likely because, you know, the slave owners had little dick syndrome, so the white man would have to have his way with the female slaves. Thus, the splits on the white family trees began with the birth of mixed babies. So fast forward to the end of the Civil War, and the white man's fury at the destruction of his way of life mingled with his fear of what retribution looked like from the black community. So now in their eyes, the tables had turned and black men would be free to have their way with their, quote, precious white wives, like they had previously done to the same uh, female slaves. So great vigilance would be required to prevent such abominations. Because, you know, forcefully raping a slave over and over again because you couldn't get it up wasn't an abomination enough, but, you know, I digress. These feelings of white guilt and rage boiled over around noon on May 30th, 1921. So when Dick, he appeared at home way before he was supposed to. He came bounding in the house, pouring sweat and unable to catch his breath. He had sprinted the entire mile home from the Drexel building. Just as Damie expected, the page girl was at the center of Dick's troubles. Dick explained that he had, a di- he had taken a different elevator up to deliver a customer's shoes on the third floor before climbing the last set of stairs to use the bathroom on the fourth. He waited at the elevator for Sarah to take him back down. The lift came creaking up the up and the door opened. Dick smiled at Sarah and hurried onto the elevator. But in his excitement, he caught his foot on the landing and fell into Sarah by accident. He tried to apologize to her, but she had a temper and started yelling and beating him over the head with her purse. Dick continued that he reached up to hold her arms back, but when the elevator reached the ground, she screamed that she had been assaulted. A clerk from a nearby store came running and tried to catch Dick, but he had outran him and came straight home. Both Damie and Dick knew that there was no hiding from what he had done, because whether guilty or innocent, that didn't matter one bit. Sooner or later, there would be hell to pay for touching a white girl, and as it turned out, the hell had arrived sooner. The first night passed by pretty quickly. They waited up all night for the mob to arrive, but no one came. The next morning, Dick snuck out to see some friends, but he was spotted by the police. 
Within a matter of minutes, he was cuffed and brought down to city to the city jail. Damie received the call that every mother of a black son prays that she never has to hear. But luckily, Dick was not dead, but at the jail and needing an attorney. When Damie arrives at the courthouse, she's greeted by a tall Tulsa sheriff, William McCullough. Sheriff McCullough said the page girl was nothing but trouble, and that Tulsa detectives already were skeptical of what she said. He promised Damie that Dick would get in, get his day in court. The, this promise was one that McCullough fully intended to keep, clan or no clan. It was a typical Sunday night ritual for Ruth Siegler and her family. As the sun sunk beneath the hills to the west, Ruth and her family made their way back to Tulsa from her family's ranch. As the skyline of Tulsa appeared on the black horizon... Ruth noticed something unusual that caught her eyes. A speck of brightness appeared atop a nearby hill called Shadow Mountain. The road to Tulsa took them over the mountain, and as they inched their way up the light, grew into flames of a burning cross at least 30 feet high. Dozens of cars encircled the cross, their headlights burning. The headlights in the roaring bonfire illuminated 50 anonymous men in white hoods. Ruth's family pulled off the road along with about six other cars. The Klansmen ignored the spectators because their attention was focused on what was attached to the burning cross. As Ruth's eyes adjusted to the brightness, she realized that they had bound a black man to a pole and were tar and feathering him. After a few minutes, Ruth's family drove away in horror. She always questioned, what had that man done to deserve that treatment? The question and the terrible scene from their Sunday night drive in 1920 haunted her for the rest of her life. We move now to young Philip Rees. He lived with his family in Tulsa. On two or three occasions in 1919 or 1920, Philip's father took him by hand and walked him and his brother to the courthouse to witness the mass march of hundreds of white-hooded Klansmen walking down the streets of Tulsa. Philip remembered his father pointing out person after person that they would recognize. Clan memberships in Boomtown, Tulsa eventually numbered in the thousands. So this transcended every profession and income. Doctors marched next to, next to carpenters. Judges marched next to ministers. All were joined by the fact that they had shared the same skin color and Protestant religious background. The first Tulsans swore the Klan oath as early as 1918 for what they, what they considered at the time to be reasonable, uh, honorable reasons. They claimed it was because they were tired of a corrupt and inept police department. Overall, though, they were drawn to the Klan for the same reasons that former Confederate soldiers were drawn to it. They saw vigilante violence as a way to express their hatred of anything that did not look like them. In Tulsa, their hatred was projected onto returning black soldiers from World War I who, along with the rest of Greenwood, was thriving while they believed that the white race was suffering. While there's a debate about the Klan's role in the obliteration of Greenwood, I'll let the words of a former Tulsa Klansman answer that question. Former Klansman Andre Wilkes stated that he had no doubt that the Klan encouraged the murder and mayhem in Tulsa. 
He stated that the Tulsa leaders believe the best way to increase membership is to have a good riot. So while there were many newspapers that covered the alleged incident with Dick Rowland, Richard Lloyd Jones's account in the Tulsa Tribune proved to be the final straw. That first street edition rolled off the Tribune presses and into the arms of paper boys at about three in the afternoon. The few hundred copies were snapped up within minutes. Some citizens threw the paper away in disgust over the clearly false story. Unfortunately, the majority of the town took the headline as a call to arms. This time it would not be necessary to wear a white hood, though, because this paper gave them a feeling of legitimacy. Minutes after the first copy hit the streets, the first members of the Tulsa mob headed for the county courthouse. The mob continued to grow as men and women got off work and rushed from their downtown offices to the courthouses. Minutes after Dick Rowland's booking into the jail, he was rushed up to his cell on the fourth floor. The courthouse, which was a fortress-like building that occupied most of a city block, sat upon a high embankment at the corner of the 6th and Boulder Street. He believed that it would only be a matter of time before the steel door of the jail would swing open and he would be handed to the mob. Sheriff McCullough's stomach tightened when he saw the copy of the Tribune. He had always had a profound distaste for vigilante justice. He was disgusted by hangings and was appalled when his predecessor had surrendered a suspect so easily to a mob only months before. Because of McCullough's strong convictions regarding vigilante justice, he meant every word to Damie Rowland when he said that there would, they would have to shoot him before he would hand Dick over to the mob. As the afternoon wore on, the chants from the mob only grew louder and louder. McCullough's deputies suggested that they transfer Rowland out of town before nightfall. McCullough decided to wait. This was, a, this was a decision that he would soon come to regret. While the mob continued to grow in Tulsa, word reached downtown Greenwood about Dick being arrested. Within an hour, men rushed home to grab their pistols and shotguns. Car after car drove up and down the streets of Greenwood with men shooting their weapons in the air and yelling defiantly, Not in Greenwood! And if they try to lynch, we're going to get them! it quickly became clear that the seemingly perfect picture of Tulsa was being ripped apart into the makings of an all-out war. Decades and decades of subliminal resentment and unacknowledged wrongdoings were finally about to boil over. Richard Lloyd Jones's incendiary paper had cast a match to the dry kindling of race in Tulsa. The machinery of catastrophe had been set in gear, an engine fueled by hatred so intense that no human power could prevail against it. So this concludes our first episode on the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 and the destruction of Black Wall Street. Make sure to tune in next week when we will pick up with our two militias facing off in the streets of Tulsa and the subsequent white invasion and destruction of Greenwood. We'll conclude this series by discussing the aftermath and subsequent cover-up of the Tulsa Race Massacre from our history books and how whitewashing of history has helped to preserve the perpetuation of racism in our country. So, before we sign off, I want to hear from you. Have you heard about the Tulsa Race Massacre or Black Wall Street or anything like this before hearing this podcast? Make sure to leave me a comment. 
If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to hit that thumbs up and subscribe button below to keep up with any new content that I put out. You can also subscribe to me on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. I greatly appreciate any reviews or comments. So until next week, this is Caleb Mood reminding you that the most revolutionary act that one can engage in is to simply tell the truth. Thank you, and have a great week. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end. It's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. Let's say you make it to the top. What's next? Relish in the glory of your accomplishments? Okay, sure, for a minute. But then you move forward. Take the 2021 Escalade. Cadillac's newest arrival is more than just a celebration of iconic luxury. It's the most technologically advanced Escalade ever. Because arriving is just the beginning. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving.